Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the Dublin Festival of History 2023, writer and journalist Susan McKay talks to Peter Taylor about his book Operation Chiffon, the secret story of MI5 and MI6 and the road to peace in Ireland. Operation Chiffon takes us inside the top secret intelligence operation whose roots go back to the bloodiest years of the conflict in the early 1970s involving officers from MI6 and later in the 1990s MI5. This episode was recorded at the Dublin Unitarian Church on the 29th of March 2023. It's always a big event when Peter Taylor brings out a book and this one does look extremely intriguing. Uh, Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I have listened to his interviews and and read the briefing that I, I got from his publisher about the book and it does sound really fascinating. Peter is um, well known to anybody who has had uh, the kind of obsession that most Northerners have about the northern part of this country. Um, He first came here immediately after Bloody Sunday in in 1972, which of course happened in my home city of Derry. And uh, he describes it as having been a life-changing event. He had been working for Thames TV on the This Week programme, a legendary programme, which um, many of you, I can tell by the colour of your hair, will have remembered. Uh, It was a a fantastic uh, series. And um, he came over as part of that to Derry, not knowing a great deal about the place, but quickly realising that it was an immensely complicated and uh, important story. And he has been following it ever since. So he did a programme afterwards, he told me, in which he he interviewed an IRA leader and a colleague of his interviewed the uh, commander of the paratroop regiment. And he immediately became aware of the complexity and difficulty of telling the story of the North and uh, described himself as having felt guilty and ignorant at that point, which I think is a feeling that most of us have had habitually about the North over, over the years that have followed from that. So 50 years spent on research, uh, 10 books, nine of which have been about the Northern conflict. The first of which was called Beating the Terrorists in 1979, which was a, a double meaning in that it, was, it wasn't just about defeating the terrorists, it was about uh, the untoward means that were being used at that time. He's written about loyalists, he's written about Republicans. He's moved to the BBC in 1980 and he's done many, many documentaries as well as his books. He's won just about all of the awards going, including BAFTA's Royal Television Society Awards, and he's got an OBE. So this new book um, is just published and he's currently promoting it around uh, the UK and Ireland. And I'm going to hand over to Peter now to talk about the book for some, some you know, five, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever he feels moved. Maybe, maybe the pulpit will inspire you to speak for a full hour. And then we're going to, I'm going to ask him some questions about it and then we'll open it to a, a Q&A afterwards. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter Taylor. Thank you, Susan. Uh, and. Good evening, everybody. It's lovely to see so many people here. And it's a great privilege to be able to talk to you this evening about Operation Chiffon. Now, Susan used the word intriguing, 
the reason why we had this particular cover is because Bloomsbury, my publisher, I'd never seen this photograph before, thought it was an intriguing picture. And there's an author's note at the very beginning of the book to explain <laughs> what this picture, this photograph is all about. And it's a historic photograph that I'd never seen before, but I was very familiar with the event. And what it is, it's, it's from 1972, just before the first meeting between, the secret meeting between the British government and the leadership of the IRA in 1972. It features the then leaders of the IRA, David O'Connell, now dead, Martin McGuinness, you will know and recognize, now dead, uh, Sean McSteerfan, who at the time was the chief of staff of the IRA, and Seamus Toomey, who was the hardline, formidable Belfast IRA commander. And I met and got to know all these people. The reason why it's important is that they were about to give a press conference at which they invited the Northern Ireland secretary, William Whitelaw, Willie Whitelaw, to come to Derry to discuss the opportunity for peace. Now, needless to say, Mr. Whitelaw did not accept their invitation, but agreed to meet them under great pressure from, his, uh, from uh, Frank Steele, who was the first MI6 officer to become involved in the events that actually led to Operation Chiffon. Uh, Frank Steele persuaded Willie Whitelaw to go ahead and meet the IRA secretly, of all places, in Cheney Walk, Chelsea, at the posh home of his posh number two. They discussed the possibility of peace. The IRA demanded that the British left Northern Ireland by 1976, Brits out by 76. This was the time when the IRA were confident that they could actually drive the Brits into the sea, which of course was, was, never, was never possible. But that's why this picture is important because this marks the beginning of the attempt by Britain to reach an agreement with, to get the IRA to stop killing people, to work out some way out of this dark conflict. And 19, the 70s, which some of you may remember, I certainly do, were the bloodiest and worst and most violent of all the years, the 1970s. So this, this is the beginning of Operation Chiffon. Now, what was Operation Chiffon? Operation Chiffon was designed by MI5, which is Britain's domestic intelligence agency, to do two things. And it started in 19, uh, 1991. And at the heart of Operation Chiffon was, was Robert, who was the MI5 officer whom I interviewed. And I don't know if any of you saw, if you watched the BBC in Dublin, but I made a documentary about Operation Chiffon and, and Robert, who was the MI5 agent at the centre of it, last Saturday, and it's on iPlayer if any of you are, are, are interested. The point of Operation Chiffon was to get the IRA to call a ceasefire and, and enter talks. Ceasefire, enter talks. And that's what happened. The IRA did declare, actually, two ceasefires, and in the end, did end violence which enabled them to enter the Good Friday Agreement. Without those ceasefires and without the IRA's agreement to end the campaign, there would not have been a Good Friday Agreement. So the role that Robert played in this, which I'll discuss in, in a few minutes, although it's very, it'll be very brief, but the detail of it are all 
embedded in, in, in the book. But Operation Chiffon that actually helps lead to, not the word, I, I use the word helped, helped lead to uh, Good Friday, had many antecedents, in particular over the preceding 20 years. So in the, 19, in the 1970s, to try and get out of this you know, intractable problem that was causing so much suffering and death on all sides, on all sides, and all sides were responsible for it. It wasn't just the IRA, it was the British Army, look at, look at Bloody Sunday. It was the loyalists who were slaughtering innocent Catholics to try and force the IRA under pressure from its community to stop killing people, a whole range of things. So the British, or Michael Oatley, who was the MI6 officer, met Brendan Duddy in Derry. Brendan was the, uh, the go-between in the back channel from the British government to, uh, uh, to the IRA. Michael Oatley and Brendan Duddy developed a back channel, a way of secretly communicating with the leadership of the IRA. That's how it all began. So Operation Chiffon is based on the remarkable work that Michael Oatley and Brendan Duddy did through the 70s and 80s through to the early 90s, which is when Chiffon begins. And the reason Chiffon begins is that in 1991, when Michael Oatley was about to retire from MI6, he had a last meeting at his instigation and he had no authority for doing it he, he, he just did it of his own bat. He wanted to find out what the chances were of a peaceful resolution to this horrific conflict that had been going on for, you know, for, for 20 years by the 1990s. So he arranged to meet, again, secretly, Martin McGuinness. He met Martin McGuinness, and they discussed the position of each side. And McGuinness told Michael Oakley that the IRA was looking for some way out of the conflict because by the end of the 1990s, there was effectively a, a stalemate. The British recognised they weren't going to defeat the IRA and the IRA recognised that they weren't going to defeat the British. So what do you do? You either carry on killing each other and, and making no political progress or you try and make political progress. And the fact that the IRA recognised that is hugely important and the fact that the British recognised it too is hugely important. And, and so you had both sides recognising that the only way out of the conflict was some sort of compromise. And that's what Operation Chiffon was about. So Oatley then goes back to the Northern Ireland office to uh, John Chilcott, who, was the, who features a lot in the book, uh, who was the senior British official at the Northern Ireland office, and says to John Chilcott, look, the IRA are interested in talking, but to do that, there needs to be a ceasefire first of all. So when Michael Oatley retires, he's, his place is taken by a person that the IRA came to know as Fred, would you believe, Fred, but his real name is Robert, as I subsequently discovered. And so Fred takes over Operation Chiffon. And I now have to sort of concertina the story. But a meeting had been arranged between, through the back channel, between the British, between Robert and Martin McGuinness and Jerry Kelly, secretly, without, actually at this stage, with the blessing of the British government to try and explore each other's position. Uh, the meeting is due to go ahead on the 23rd of March, uh, 19, uh, 19, 
1993. But it doesn't happen because three days before, the IRA bombed Warrington, killing two, li two little boys. A horrific atrocity. The British government decide there is no way that a meeting, however secret it is, between the British government, between Robert of MI5 and Martin McGuinness and Jerry Kelly can go ahead in the wake of Warrington because if it ever became known, became public, that that had happened, that the Brits had met the IRA three days after the atrocity of Warrington, the sky would fall in. So the meeting is cancelled. Robert decides that he has to go to the meeting. He's told by his boss, John Deverell, who was the head of MI5 in Northern Ireland, the meeting's off. We can't go because originally Deverell was meant to go with, with Robert. Robert says, look, if I don't go, all the work that's been done over the pre preceding 20 years is finished. The IRA will say, perfidious Albion, we knew we could never trust you. We built up trust. You've destroyed it. The meeting was planned. It was going to be a breakthrough meeting. And now you're not coming. Forget it. All game back to the violence. So Robert says, I'm going. And Deverell says, his boss, you can't go, it's forbidden. Robert says, if I don't go, forget the peace process. I'm, all, I'm going. So he goes to the meeting and he's interrogated by Martin McGuinness. And at the meeting, he says, and it's, it's on, all on the record in the Sinn Féin seminal document, setting the record straight, that was published in 1994, when the whole thing about the back channel and the Brits meeting McGuinness and the IRA becomes public. Sinn Féin then published their detailed account of all that had gone on, all the papers that had been exchanged. It was a proper sort of diplomatic interchange, exchange between the British uh, and the IRA, and it's all in here. And Jerry Kelly, who was taking the minutes of the meeting, and McGuinness was also taking the minutes of the meeting. I know this from having finally met Robert and talked to him, who told me all this, that was, it's all in the book and in the television programme I did. The Sinn Féin account has Robert saying to McGuinness, because McGuinness says, you know, what are the Brits, you know, what's the, what's the Brits' long-term end? What are, they, what are they up to? Where are they going? And Robert says, and I quote, any settlement not involving all the people north and south won't work. A north-south settlement that won't frighten unionists. These are the key words. The final solution is union. It is going to happen anyway. The historical train Europe determines that. We were then members of the EEC, not the EU. The climate was very different. It's important to remember that. The historical train Europe determines that. That's really important. We are committed to Europe. Unionists will have to change. This island will be as one. And when I, when I read that, when it was published, I couldn't believe that any British official, be he MI5, MI6 or whatever, ever, that those words would ever come from the lips of any British official because... I didn't believe it to be true that that wasn't the long-term aim of British government policy, although it may eventuate given circumstances. And the only way I knew that I could prove that these words were spoken was by finding Robert. And I got to know his name. And a brilliant researcher colleague of mine, and she deserves the credit, went through endless 
University Oxbridge results, or through Cambridge results, and the clue to it was when Robert, Robert subsequently resigned. He was, he's an honorable man. He fell on his sword when the whole thing became public and caused huge political embarrassment to the Prime Minister and also to Sir Patrick Mayhew, uh, who was the Northern Ireland Secretary. He fell on his sword. He resigned. And I knew I had to find him. And Julia, my colleague, my researcher, found out who he was and where he was. And the clue lay in an inscription that Robert wrote in a book that was a farewell present to Brendan. It was a quote from Virgil's Aeneid in Latin. And therefore the clue was he probably was a classicist, probably studied classics at university. In fact, he was at Oxford, uh, but he read history. <laughs> he didn't read classics. So that was the clue that b began the trail. And I finally went to find him in uh, 1999 when I was doing the Brits program. And I went with my producer. And to my chagrin, he wasn't there. He was away on a cruise around Greece. And I thought, aha, Greece, classicist. Maybe you know, we're on the, on the right lines. Uh, and he wasn't there. But I left a copy of my provost book and a note for him. So I tried again later on my own, about three weeks later, and there he was, or there the person was that I thought was Robert, standing in the yard, and it was, the weather was foul. I mean, I was like a drowned rat, I was standing there, and he was standing there also, soaked, soaked to the skin. And I told him who I was, I was working at the BBC, and, and could I talk to him? And he looked me straight in the eye and said, you've got the wrong man. I'm not the person you're looking for. And I said, okay, but politely, I said, oh, come on. But, you know, you, you worked in Derry. Uh, I didn't say you were an MI5 agent. I said, you worked in Derry, and you knew Brendan Duddy. Brendan who, he said. So, try though I did, I couldn't get anything from him. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't ask him about what he'd said because he wasn't admitting he was who he was. So I went away empty-handed empty and deeply depressed, but thought if he was who he was, and I believe him to be who he was, he would have asked me in, come out, you know, out of the rain, I'll give you your book back again, I, I got the book, uh, and tell me what's happened, you know, have a cup of tea, dry out, he didn't do that, he left me standing on the doorstep, although he insisted he asked me in, I have no recollection of him asking me in. So that was it, I'd failed, but I knew, I knew he was the right man, there was no question about it. So 20 years later, I get a letter in 2021. And the letter was from Robert because I'd left a, a note with my book so he got my, my address, hoping that he'd get in touch, but never dreaming that he would. 20 years later, the letter says, Dear Peter, you will no doubt be surprised to hear from me after so many years you bet. I was stimulated by your recent programme. That was the documentary I did on Ireland since uh, partition, on the centenary of, uh, of, of partition. For a variety of reasons, I could now give you some background which might fill in some gaps. Were you so interested? Two of the leading figures in my involvement have died, Martin McGuinness and Brendan Duddy. The third, crucially for me, is my wife. It is her death which puts me in a position to contact you. There was a telephone number on, on, the, uh, on the letter, which was an invitation for me to get in touch. I got in touch, went to see him, 
subsequently paid many visits to him, established a relationship with him, which is what you have to do under these circumstances. And in the end, he agreed to do an interview. Uh, we couldn't identify his face for security reasons, but we could use his voice, which was astonishing. Lastly, because people may say, yes, but, you know, you know, he, yes, he, he might have been involved peripherally, but wasn't really that important. The proof that he was that important is that just after he fell on his sword, he resigned because of the trouble he'd caused, and in particular, the embarrassment he caused to Sir Patrick Mayhew, the Northern Ireland Secretary. Sir Patrick Mayhew, who, like Willie Whitelaw, was one of the old school, a gentleman, if you like, he wrote a handwritten letter to Robert that began, Dear Fred, because they knew Robert as Fred. Dear Fred, I do not want to allow your, your career to conclude, and I know it has been distinguished by great dedication and courage, without expressing to you my personal admiration and thanks for your service. Great events frequently claim casualties, as those who try to play a part in shaping them come to realise. It is important not to permit them to distort the true perspective of their enterprise in which they are sustained, and especially so when the casualties include ourselves. In time, I am confident that peace properly attained will come to Northern Ireland, and that is what matters most of all to all of us. With my best wishes, yours sincerely, Patrick Mayhew. And that's basically the story of Operation Chiffon, bearing in mind it wasn't a one-off, it was the culmination of all the efforts that have been made over, over two decades. Now, I've gone on for far too long and said far too much, but it will give you some idea of, of, of what lies in here, the detail of it that may answer some of the questions you have. And I hope you will uh, read it. There's also an, an audio book. I spent four days, five hours a day reading this, and it's very strange <laughs> reading your own book. But anyway, I hope you will read it and I hope you will enjoy it. And Susan, I've gone on far too long, but I'm dying to talk to you or you to talk to me. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. That was very enthralling. I, I have to say, I suppose, uh, speaking as, as, a, as a woman and a person who was uh, formerly a community worker in Northern Ireland not all that long before the period that you're writing about, I'm somewhat sceptical about these single male figures who uh, attribute to themselves huge importance in the pursuit of peace in the North. That wasn't Robert. He, he didn't brag about it. He was reluctant to tell his story, but carry on. Well, he was reluctant to tell his story, but when he did, he talked about feeling that he needed to find justice and he wanted his role in bringing about the Good Friday Agreement to be acknowledged. And I kind of felt like there's, at the moment, there's a queue the length of Ireland of men wanting to be in Belfast for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement to talk about how essential they, in particular, were to the bringing of it about. So I'm sure that you do it in the book, but I'd like you to talk a bit about the other strands of things that were going on around Operation Chiffon at that time. I mean, for example, I was in the Sunday Tribune newsroom when Eamon McCann phoned in in 1993 to say that he had just seen Gerry Adams leaving John Hume's mm. house in the Bogside. And that was another hidden channel of talk that was going on. And there were other things. It was a very complicated and complex process, but primarily driven, I would say, by the 
the absolute war weariness of the communities in, in Northern Ireland. So I'm sure that you do it in the book, but could you maybe fill, us, fill a bit of that in for us? Because I know you've written a lot about it over the years. I interviewed uh, Jerry Kelly last, last, last month about these events and about meeting Robert and what Robert said. And they, they, they be, he said, basically, we believed what he said, coming from the Brits, because he was presented to us as the British government representative. Now, answering your, answering your question, I, I don't say in the book, I don't wish to imply in the book, that Robert was, you know, the magic bullet, the magic bullet to Good Friday. He was not. I say it was the result of many complicated interactions at various levels. They included co other covert inter interactions with John Hume and Jerry Adams. It involved the, uh, the British government, John Major and Albert Reynolds. It involved the White House, it involved Bill Clinton. A whole series of things came together to make Good Friday possible. The case that I make, and I still stand by, is that Robert's contribution in, in encouraging the IRA to a ceasefire, which they were thinking about anyway, it didn't sort of come out of the blue. That had been on the cards, it was a question of, of how you got the ceasefire. And I think that Robert did by what he said, that was not true and was not authorized and he should never have gone to the meeting, did act as an incentive, an encouragement to the IRA to carry on and in the end, produced the ceasefire of 1994 and then the second ceasefire after the uh, Canary Wharf bombing in 1997 that allowed Sinn Féin to take part in Good Friday was important. There were, as I say, and I can't say it strongly enough because I always realised I was going to face the kind of criticism that I've just had from, from Susan. It was a question, but it was an observation and it was heartfelt and for all the right reasons. And it just so happened that all the main people involved, by and large, with the exception of people like remarkable women like Mo Molan, it was essentially men who were involved. Um, Mo Molan was important in finally finishing the, the work of Operation Chiffon, but openly by meeting the loyalists, because also it required the loyalist ceasefire. It's very, you're absolutely right, you know that because you were involved in it as a community worker. Uh, it was very, very complicated. And it's astonishing that in the end it all came together. And a lot of that was due to George Mitchell, Senator Mitchell, who did an incredible job. Without Mitchell, you know, hanging on in there, like, like I don't think I hung on in there to try and find Robert, was, was, was vital. And Tony Blair, I think, the, 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 much of the credit for Good Friday begins with John Major. It was John Major, who never shouted it from the rooftops, who gave Operation Chiffon the green light. The Prime Minister knew about it. Very, very few other people knew about it. Uh, Patrick Mayhew, in the end, was, was told about it. So yes, you're absolutely right. It's, it's complicated. Many people were involved. There was no one person. Some people played a bigger role than others but it produced, miraculously, Good Friday. And Good Friday produced peace of a kind that we still enjoy today, and hopefully we will continue to enjoy. But I accept what you say.
And in terms of, say, the Downing Street Declaration, how does the activity of MI5 and MI6 bind into that? Well, MI5, and we're now talking about MI5 in, the, in this period, because MI5 was then given uh, responsibility overall for counterterrorism. Uh, so MI5 would have been involved in the discussions because you know, we think of MI5 being spooks and everything else, but you know, they are, they are government officers. So they discuss these matters with the Prime Minister and the Northern Ireland Secretary, and the Northern Ireland Secretary discusses it with people like John Deverell, although not directly with Robert. So you know, MI5 and 6 know, know what is going on. I remember uh, talking off the record to a senior MI5 officer, this is one stage beyond uh, about the setting up of the power sharing executive. And I, and I said, look, but Ian Paisley, whom you may recall, was dead against Good Friday. He had nothing to do with Good Friday. It was the devil's work. And then Paisley uh, uh, changes. And John Hume convinces Jerry Adams that this is something which th the British may accept, which will fit in with, with Adams's um, agenda. So the Downing Street Declaration between John Major and Albert Reynolds, and Reynolds played a really, really important part. And he also you know, had good contacts into the North and into Derry in particular. So he knew what was going on. So that was, you know, that was the foundation. Good, um, the Downing Street Declaration was the foundation. But the, the back channel is still going on, and that was... MI5's Operation Chiffon, they were holding on to that. But after Robert resigned, Martin McGuinness effectively kills, kills the channel because the message, the conflict is over, but we need your help on how to bring it to an end that was seen as a white flag by McGuinness and the IRA. So just summarising, it was very complicated. It was a miracle it happened, and Robert played a significant part, a significant, significant role in that, because without the IRA ceasefire, there would not have been a Good Friday Agreement. And do you think that a person can do the right thing and fall on their sword and then kind of pull it out again and say, hang on, I also want to be remembered? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, I think Robert wanted, he wanted to be remembered, but also wanted to set the record straight about the actual famous, infamous message, the conflict is over, but we need your help on how to bring it to an end. Because it was Robert who got the message from Brendan Duddy, and it was Robert who actually wrote the message, handwritten, a photograph of which is in, is in the book. And that message, I'm still not convinced that it was actually a message from McGuinness, but it reflected what McGuinness and the leadership of the IRA and Sinn Féin were thinking. There's no question about that. But the bit I don't think they would have said is we need your help in how to bring it to an end. So I think with, with, with Robert's uh, input, there was always a slight question mark, certainly a big question mark about Ireland will be as one. And I think on the conflict is over message, I think there was a bit of a bit of encouragement, you know, 
Yeah, what about the unionists? What about the unionists are going to have to change a bit? <laughs> That's not going so well, perhaps. But do you think that they, they said that? I think by this time, because the Brits had emphasised from Cheney Walk onwards, and I've you know, looked at all as many of the record, government records as I can of these meetings, and they're quoted in the book, time and time again the British were saying to the IRA, look, we don't mind a united island, those weren't their words, but the prerequisite is it has to be with the agreement of the majority. You cannot get a united island in the teeth of opposition from unionism and loyalism. You've got to come to terms with them. And that was the message that was planted loud and clear in 1972 and carried on being repeated and repeated by Robert, even at the meeting when he said, Ireland be as, as one. So the important thing about Martin McGuinness, and I you know, don't admire what he did as a leader of the IRA, but I do admire the political journey he took to become Deputy First Minister and crucially shaking hands with Her Majesty the Queen and then dining with her in white tie and tails in honour of your president at Windsor Castle. And the reason why McGuinness did that is because the penny had finally dropped that we could only, we, they, the IRA, the Republican movement, Sinn Féin, could only move towards a united island at whatever stage by taking unionist and loyalist with them. That's the key thing. And that's McGuinness's legacy. And in terms of that actual statement, uh, Peter, um, the paraphrase or the shorter version of it, which is in, in the notes for the book, the final solution is union. Unionism will have to change. The island will be as one. You quoted a slightly longer version of it when you were talking there, where, where you brought in yes. the European, the EEC, as it yeah. was then. Um, which was crucial. Yes, yeah. When did that first come into the public domain without it being known that Robert was the person who had, had delivered it? It came into the public domain when Sinn Féin published Setting the Record Straight, which I quoted from. The full quote, and there's more, is, is, is there, which is when I became aware of it, and as I said, I couldn't believe that any British official would ever utter, utter those words, and I had to find out whether those words had been uttered, and they had. I also asked Michael Oatley, because I've tried to trace the origin of it, according to Robert, which was the briefing that Michael Oatley gave to John Chilcott, the British senior civil servant at the Northern Ireland office, following his meeting, again, secret meeting, unauthorised with McGuinness, what McGuinness had said. And I think the, cr the crucial part of that, which is, uh, you know, unionists will have to uh, change, was that was said in the European context. Now, looking back, and I remember it, and that's one of the reasons why Good Friday was possible, thanks to no small degree to John Hume, who was you know, a, a, a passionate European who saw that it was nonsense that this conflict should carry on within, it wasn't then a united Europe, which is one of the reasons why the Brits, <laughs> one of the reasons for Brexit, but you know, Hume saw the anomaly of this little local, but devastatingly awful, bloody, violent conflict going on within Europe. It just didn't make sense. So those words were said in the context of Europe. And I think what happened is that Robert probably exaggerated that 
again, to try and, and encourage the IRA. And that's part of the way that the intelligence services operate. Not all the time, but some of the time. And I think Robert certainly exceeded his brief, but he did it with the best of intentions because he wanted peace. And the common denominator, I was asked this question last night in Belfast, you know, how did it happen? What had, and I think it was individuals, you know, who, who changed history, be it Robert, John Hume, Jerry Adams, Albert Reynolds, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton. These are individuals, all of whom wanted one thing, including loyalists as well, loyalist paramilitaries, who also were weary, not all of them, but enough of them were weary enough, weary enough to declare a ceasefire themselves. And the common denominator there is, is the wish for peace. I mean, people by the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, and I, you know, I was there, I lived through it as well. I didn't suffer like many people did, and perhaps some of your relatives suffered. But I went through it, and I, I just knew by the end of the 1980s that there had to be some kind of compromise. There was a stalemate, and that's what happened. Well, I was asking about that the, when that quote came into the public domain, partly because I wondered what was the public reaction to it at the when it first appeared? I mean, presumably loyalists and unionists were highly displeased to know that a British official had, secret, had secretly passed this message. Because they always believed that treachery was afoot. Look at Paisley, look at the, the loyalist mantra. They never trusted. They never trusted the Brits and I suspect probably still don't trust the Brits. But was there a major reaction to it? No, there wasn't, you know, and I was surprised at that because it was, you know, it was the, the Observer headline. Britain, because uh, Major had said there had been no meeting with the IRA, no authorised meeting with the IRA, uh, and therefore he w Paisley attacked him for being a liar he attacked John Major in the House of Commons as being a liar because it appeared that there had been meetings with the IRA. But it was unfair because the government did not know about this meeting. That's the crucial thing. Robert had disobeyed orders, gone ahead, said what he did without authority, and the government knew nothing about it. So that's why it was so important and so shocking. And you know, Major was wrongly accused of hypocrisy because he knew nothing about the meeting. So following on from that meeting, I mean, of course, then there is the trail which you described towards the, the Good Friday Agreement. Did MI5 continue to, to play a role in that period? No, it's a straight answer. Uh, I, I mean, I've made inquiries about that. D did they, after McGuinness had killed the back channel with, with, with Duddy and there were other people involved with, du with, Duddy, uh, with Duddy as well. No, they didn't because the IRA had then decided, given all the fuss that had happened when all this came out into the open, that they wanted to deal, they'd always wanted to deal face to face directly with the Brits and, and that's what they did. So after Robert resigns, the back channel is finished McGuinness has killed it primarily because of we need your help and the embarrassment that caused. And so the road to Good Friday then, you know, MI5 isn't involved. You know, it's involved in discussions about the way forward, but in terms of, you know, covert operations, although you'd still be doing covert operations against, you know, the IRA and the, and the loyalists, 
having responsibility overall for terrorism in, in the UK, but it's no longer involved politically. And one thing I was going to say is that just moving on from Paisley who excoriated the Good Friday Agreement as you know, the, the work of Satan, he, he then becomes first minister, amazing transformation. And I remember talking to a senior MI5 officer in, in, informally. This is after Good Friday with the prospect of a power-sharing executive, sort of Sunningdale, as Seamus Mallon, Seamus Mallon said, Sunningdale for slow learners on the horizon. And I said to this senior uh, MI5 officer, but you know, how can there be a power-sharing executive if the DUP, which was Ian Paisley, as you know, he founded the DUP, if Paisley is against it? And he said to me, he'll do the deal, which indicates the degree of intelligence they had from within the DUP, not just the paramilitaries, but, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what MLFI's job was. So they carried on playing an important political role and making assessments which they would pass on to the politicians on the likelihood of these things happening and how they had to go about making sure that they became a reality. So the MI5 carried on, but not as a sort of, well, I suppose they were still <laughs> spying, but getting information from within the political parties to, I was gonna say, to educate, to illuminate for the politicians ways in which they might get round the, the impasse because there was a willingness to move forward. You talk about MI5 in a, in a way as if it, it has a sort of honest broker role in, in all of this, but I suppose, I mean, it is very clear that there are many, many people in the North who don't see the British security services, particularly at that period, as having been in a particularly honest broker's role. I mean, I would have been working a lot during those, those times going to, uh, in the period immediately after that 1993 period, the Drum Cree period where it is fairly clear that the British security services were involved in some very, very murky activity with loyalist paramilitaries and in, in, in killing Catholic civilians and so on. Well, I would no, dispute that. No, but I, well, what, what I want to, well, I don't think that there's actually any doubt about that. I'm not saying that MI5 was involved in it, but other elements were, were involved certainly in collusive activity at that time. That's, that's true, yeah. So what I wanted to ask you was, I mean, how um, how do MI5 regard the history of, of that period, the period that followed that? Do you, do you know that? I mean, I know it's not the immediate subject of your book. It's just something that interests me because that period between 1993 and 1998, there was a lot of stuff going on to the extent that sometimes as a journalist covering that period, I began to doubt everything I thought I knew because sometimes I felt as if we were all just puppets of somebody or other, you know, that there were so many different sort of briefings going on from every direction. And sometimes you would get a briefing about somebody and then the next time you talk to that source, they would be kind of saying, oh, him, he's nothing but a Walter Mitty. You know, it was a very confused and confusing period, wasn't it? Where it's hard to see what the strings were. Well, you were on the ground as a working journalist. As I was, I mean, I covered Drum Cree. I met Billy Wright. And it was, it was very confusing. And there was lots of briefing from one side or the other. But, you know, I don't... Uh, 
the first thing is when you mentioned the honest broker thing, there is no doubt that MI6, Michael Oatley, MI5, Brendan Duddy as the go-between, played a vital role in, in moving the whole thing forward from the early 70s through to, through to Good Friday in, in one way or another. There's no question about the honest broker thing. And I know people find it difficult to accept that MI5, the spooks, who are excoriated by you know, sections of your community in, in Northern Ireland, but I'm not convinced that their malevolent role was what was perceived. And I think they were, and, and I'm not, I may sound like an apologist for MI5, which I'm not, honestly. But I've always tried to sort of stand back because, you know, I've covered the conflict, but not in the way that you and your colleagues have, because you, you're based day by day on the ground. I mean, I would come in, not I hope as a carpetbagger, but I would, I would come in. I would certainly wouldn't describe you as that. I don't think anybody would. I try not to. Have, I hope people don't think I was just sort of parachuted in and, and, and go out again. But I, I tended to see it through a sort of broader perspective because it yeah. didn't involve me, which is what I've, what I've tried to do, which is one of the reasons I think that I was able to talk to all sides be they the IRA or the Loyalists or MI5 or Special Branch or the RUC, you know, and I, you know, I, did, I did the work on interrogation, Castlereagh, wrote beating the terrorists and stuff, and was taken to task for being, you know, unsupportive of the British government policy, so all, all that. But I think that... Um, MI5 and MI6 did act as an honest broker, and that's self-evident from what happened. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned Michael Oatley yeah. several times, and of course, he was very well known for his work on the, the during the hunger strike period, wasn't Absolutely. he? Oh, will you tell us, just in case people here don't know about that particular period? You know, the hunger strike is the pivotal moment, both in terms of the conflict and in terms of the resolution of it, because what the hunger strike did is the election of Bobby Sands transformed Sinn Féin, right? It gave Sinn Féin and those within Sinn Féin who recognised that there had to be a political solution, as Gerry Adams did, but in time, under certain circumstances. So the hunger strike was, was the great game-changer because of Bobby Sands' election. The first hunger strike could have been and came within an ace of being avoided because of Michael Oatley and Brendan Duddy. Because Billy McKee, this is fine detail, but it's in the book, uh, Billy McKee, who went on hunger strike in 1972 for special category status, political status effectively, same thing. Uh, Billy McKee went to see Brendan as the first hunger strike was getting underway and McKee told Brendan, this is going to be disastrous. You know, it's got to be ended because nobody's going to win. So Brendan then gets in touch with Michael Oatley and says, look, we've got to try and resolve, or we've got to try and help to resolve this. This is MI6 as intermediary, as, as good guys, if you like. So 
Brendan and Michael work out a formula over the telephone of a way in which it could be settled, which is essentially about own clothes, to reach a compromise on old clothes. Michael Oatley goes to see the senior civil servant at the Northern Ireland office. Uh, no, actually, yeah, that's right. And discusses the compromise with him. He agrees, and then it goes to Margaret Thatcher, who astonishingly agrees on the compromise on, on old clothes. Not out and out, you have your own clothes, but a compromise. All this is about compromise. Good Friday was about compromise. And so Michael takes the message to Belfast, where Brendan Duddy comes and meets him, when, <laughs> because Michael has taken the last flight, and hands over the compromise which Michael and Brendan think the IRA or Sinn Féin would agree to because it's you know, come, from their, come from their lips. And Brendan hands over the, 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 the message to Father Maher, who is a redemptorist priest from Dundalk, who's the go-between. He gets the message from, from Brendan, who's been given it by, by Michael Oakley. And there's nobody, there's nobody there. The terminal is empty. There's a lovely description, which is, you know, described by both Brendan and, and Michael. It's in the book. The terminal is empty because the last flight is gone and there's nobody there, apart from several burly special branch officers lurking behind pillars to make sure that, you know, neither Brendan nor, uh, uh, nor Michael Oakley is assassinated or whatever. But because of the delays... The message gets to the maze just before Sean McKenna gives up the hunger strike. And that's, that's another story because Brendan, Brendan Hughes assured McKenna. McKenna said, I'll go and hunger strike Brendan, who was the OC, but please don't let me die, is what Sean McKenna says. Sean McKenna is on the brink of death. Brendan Hughes, who's leading the first hunger strike, remembers his pledge to Sean McKenna that he would not let him die. And Brendan calls off the hunger strike. And Brendan Hughes never overcame his guilt at feeling that he, you know, he ended the first hunger strike to save Sean McKenna. And then he subsequently meets McKenna across the border and McKenna says, you bastard, you should have let me die. Yeah, it's not funny, actually, but, I mean, I know what you mean. But also that says a lot about the, the nature of the Republican movement and what the hunger strike meant to them all. Uh, so, anyway, it's, the, the, the compromise reaches the, uh, the, the Sinn Féin Army Council in the Falls Road, too late, because it's all over by then. And then there's the... You know, the compromise of the British were prepared to let the prisoners wear not their own clothes, but civilian clothes that the prison administration was providing them with. And I remember it's described in the book meeting a senior British communications officer at the, the NIO, and I think it was David Gilliland, who you will remember, 
formidable David Gillian. I remember him opening a desk drawer at Stormont and pulling out a Marks and Spencer shirt in its Marks and Spencer's wrappings. And he said, look, we're going to give the prisoners these nice new shirts and Marks and Spencer's clothes. And I said, you've got to be joking. You know, they're never going to, they won't accept it. They want their own clothes. And that was a stumbling block. And that's why Bobby Sands went on hunger strike. When you talk about Michael Oatley and from, from what we know about him, I mean, he's a relatively well-known character, isn't he, now, for anybody who follows the, the literature about the history yeah, of the conflict. Real. he, When you even describe him in the way that you just have, like he comes across as being a very sophisticated character, you know, a very skilled negotiator and, and somebody who, who was really treading a very fine path. Whereas Robert, in the way that you present him, seems almost like an almost folksy character, the way he talks about himself. You know, the way he talked to you about how he, when he went into the meeting, he, he really didn't know what he was going to say. And he remembered that he'd played, he'd acted in Romeo and Juliet and King Lear. And this was much the same, except that instead of playing to a few hundred people, he was only playing to two. And it's, it's very, very unsophisticated, isn't it? Yeah, Michael Oakley would never have said that. No, no. 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 Uh, Michael and Robert are very different and it's partly because of the relationship between MI5 and MI6 because Michael Oakley has always believed that the credit for, not Operation Chiffon, but the credit for the progress that was made was due to MI6. There's this still this sort of intense, much less so now than it was, rivalry between MI6, the Bionics of Public School, da 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 da, uh, and MI5, which is more, 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 more down to earth. And when Michael resigned, when Michael Oakley retired, the question, and Operation Chiffon is, is beginning to be set up. The question is who's going to work with Brendan? and they decide that Robert's going to work with Brendan, Robert being then MI5. But MI6 you know, runs in, 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 um, in Robert's veins because he spent many years working for MI6 and, and, and working abroad. And, and Michael still believes that the credit should go to MI6, and he, uh, he was not best pleased that the book is called uh, Operation Chiffon, which Michael had nothing to do with, uh, how MI5 and MI6 and the road to peace in Ireland, because Michael believed it should have been MI6 and MI5. And, and, and that says, you know, quite a lot about the difference between, between the two. And Michael, and this is in the book, Michael, who normally would have introduced Robert to Brendan Duddy, refused to do so, because Michael wanted to carry on working with Brendan Duddy himself. So therefore, Robert had to devise his own way of getting through to Brendan Duddy, which I go into in the book, which I won't talk about now because time is running out. Okay well thank you so much Peter for a really really fascinating and in-depth uh, description of, of what is in this book and I strongly recommend all of all of you to get it and read it because um, 
it's very clear that it is going to fill in a lot of gaps in, in a history which um, still has many, many holes in it. And uh, nobody better than yourself, Peter, to fill us in on, the, on those. And thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. This festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with the Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Instagram. 